Hello and welcome to the world of intelligence. For more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development, go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training. On this episode of our podcast, I'm joined by Cindy Otis, Vice President at the Aletheia Group. Cindy is an expert on disinformation, and today we're going to talk about how disinformation is affecting national security and intelligence issues around the world, and also to talk about Cindy's book, which is coming out soon, called True or False, and how that's hopefully going to help us remedy some of the uh, issues we have with disinformation. Cindy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Terry. No problem. It's great to have you on. Um, it would be great, actually, for, the, for our listeners, just to get a bit of your background, because you've, got an inter- you've had an interesting career so far, and it'd be great to understand a little bit about what you've done up to now and how you've come into uh, working on disinformation particularly. Yeah, so I do have a different way of getting to this point, I think. Um, little pieces of my career that have all sort of been put together like a puzzle, I think, um, that really led me to this field. So um, when I started um, working in the federal government for the United States, um, I started actually in um, the Department of the Army as a civilian working in um, public affairs and communications. So um, my start was really on the comm side of things. Um, and then um, I had always wanted to work in the intelligence community. Uh, my dream was sort of uh, the CIA from the very first moment that I saw my first James Bond film as a film, as a, as a you know movie with my dad um, as a kid. And so that was always my goal. So um, I, after graduate school, where I studied international relations, I um, joined the CIA as an analyst, um, went on to be, you know, a bunch of different roles at the intelligence briefer at the White House, um, and went into management as well. I primarily worked um, political and security issues um, in the CIA um, and regionally based. So my regions of, of focus were mostly Europe, um, the Middle East, and parts of North Africa. Um, so I left that in mid-2017 um, after 10 years, um, and I joined the private sector where I began um, working in um, disinformation and building disinformation programs, um, largely at a cybersecurity company, and then recently joined um, my, new, my new company as um, vice president of analysis, at Aletheia Group, which is a disinformation investigations and remediation firm. So all of these pieces, you know, sort of the comms background, the intel and the national security side of things. Um, and of course, we can go into more of this later about sort of how to, you know, intelligence analysis is um, really a great a great footing to be able to, to work in the disinformation space and sort of all, you know, led me to this field. That is so interesting, especially that combination that you mentioned there between um, doing sort of public facing communications, I guess, and intelligence and that interaction between that and disinformation at the moment. How did your sort of experience on the communication side help you when it came to being an intelligence analyst? Was that something that played a role? Yeah, I mean, even just from the very basics of, you know, having, um, you know, sort of a writing background, um, being able to write clearly and concisely and, and analytically um, as I went into the agency, thanks to my, my calm start, that was, of course, enormously helpful. Um, but just in terms of understanding narratives and messaging um, and how, um, you know, words can be used to get across particular meanings, um, words can be used to, you know, hide what what a country or a, a person or a group is doing. Um, words can be used to sort of paint a picture that that actually isn't very accurate. Um, and it's the job then of the intelligence analyst to to uncover all of that, right? To to sort out the the fact from the fiction, to find the truth 
um, among what is usually sort of a fire hose of, of daily information. Um, so, so the comms background was really useful there. One thing that I, that I forgot to, to mention in sort of my bio, um, is that between joining the private sector and leaving the federal government, I actually threw in there um, some political campaign experience. It was something that I'd always wanted to do and, of course, couldn't do as a federal employee. But I joined a, a congressional campaign for my um, home district in New York um, and it, it intended to be a volunteer and then ended up being the communications director um, because of my background uh, and my start um, in comms and, and my work with media. Um, and, and so also throwing that piece in as well of the, the political side of things and the election side of things and working on a campaign dealing with, you know, information that's spreading so quickly about, you know, the campaign and the race and, and all of that and seeing sort of, um, you know, disinformation and misinformation from working on a campaign perspective was also enormously useful. Um, and I sort of saw all of my different worlds colliding in that particular mm-hmm. position the, you know, the intel side of things and the disinformation side of things and the comm side of things now, you know, working on this campaign. So um, all of that background has just been extremely useful in, I think, um, understanding disinformation and thinking about disinformation in a way that 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 isn't, you know, um, that isn't just looking at it from a technical perspective or a threat actor perspective, but looking at, you know, the narrative, the larger strategic purposes, the messaging, all of that. And all of that is just really, really crucial to be able to do the kind of work that I do on a daily basis, which is, you know, hunt and and attribute and mitigate these things. So is that kind of bringing it all together, think, thinking about how it all fits together? So not just taking it one part in isolation, do you mean? Yeah. yeah, I think there are times when we do need sort of just people who focus on the technical side or the, the technological mm-hmm. solution side or mm-hmm. just the sort of narrative analysis side of things. But having that that fulsome picture, that that strategic view of, you know, the threat actors, the messaging, the narratives, the cons, the execution, the technical side as well. Um, and all of that, um, you know, I think is very necessary when we when we get into things like, OK, how do we solve this? Not only how do we find these things, but how do we solve this thing? How do we counter message and all of the and all of those things? And then, you know, sort of what should policies be? You know, the policy side, I think, is probably less my strong suit than any other area. But you can't come up with policy solutions to this problem unless you know what the problem actually is and where it's headed. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So. On that, it sounds like a lot of your experience has sort of led to, to where you are now, and, and quite deliberately, in, in a way that it's kind of got you to the point where, in some ways, you're at the you're at the center of the storm, the eye of the storm, in terms of what's current in in intelligence issues, what's going on in the world, and everything that we're all trying to deal with. But what what do you see as the problem currently as in disinformation? I know that's sort of a, a big question and deliberately big question in many ways, but yeah. Uh, maybe breaking it down into, you know, whether you're seeing particular trends or patterns and in how disinformation is being used to influence either the general public or maybe governments in specific countries. Um, so what are the kind of things that you're seeing in the work that you're doing at the moment? Yeah, that is a very big question. Um, <laughs> so there are a couple of, of big buckets of things that I that I would bring up and then happy to go into to all of them. As you can probably already guess, I could talk about this for, for days and I do talk about this for days. So. Sure. I would say um, broadly, a lot of attention on disinformation is focused on its effect um, and its use for political purposes. So whether it's a foreign actor or a domestic actor using um, disinformation to you know, influence events and things like that, we do 
end up spending a lot of time thinking about it through the lens of, you know, elections and as a political issue. Um, but absolutely there's a commercial component too, not just in terms of the actors that are, that are using disinformation. So there is a, an entire industry of, you know, companies, groups and individuals that are selling things like disinformation services, um, under the guise of perhaps PR or digital marketing or, um, you know, even quote unquote cybersecurity. Um, but in fact, what they're selling is, you know, social media influence, fake accounts, um, you know, uh, online influence to change an event, which, you know, using false information, which we term disinformation, right? Yeah. So there's, mm-hmm. there's that side of the commercial side. And then there's also, um, you know, it, it, commercial issues being targeted by disinformation. So companies being targeted with coordinated disinformation. Um, you know, again, the focus is often on the political side, but I always note here, you know, even the, the Russian IRA accounts that we know, Internet Research Agency um, accounts that we know now and have, you know, all of their tweets um, from, from 2016, um, even those accounts um, were tweeting about U.S. companies and other, you know, other companies and trying to degrade their reputation. Um, in one instance, they were trying to start a conspiracy theory about a U.S. based company um, to try to, you know, ruin their reputation, affect their bottom line, their financial bottom line and all of that. So there is this significant commercial co- component that I think often gets lost. Um, I'm seeing a lot in the work that I do right now, the the commercial sort of disinformation for hire folks that are also ideologically minded, motivated. Mm-hmm. So they're working on behalf of a particular political side. They are also financially motivated. And so they marry sort of political divisive, you know, content that is false and misleading and sensational with things like massive data collection efforts on the, you know, website assets that they run and the social media assets that they run that then they, that, you know, they then sell that data to political parties, political campaigns, political organizations to get again, their, you know, ideologically aligned candidates elected. So um, it's much more complicated of an issue than just, you know, the Russians are running bots, for example, um, which I think is, is how the narrative often gets boiled down. But on that foreign side, and on sort of the political side, you know, now that I've said we spend too much time talking about it, um, just to talk about it for a minute. <laughs> sure. um, there, I think, a, a couple of really important things happening on that front as well. So you have actors who, you know, like Russia, who are extremely experienced um, at running covert influence operations, you know, think Cold War era, um, long before social media. Um, it was a huge arm of their um, of their you know, their foreign policy effort um, and their intelligence um, efforts. And now social media has helped them. The Internet has helped them. Um, and they learned a lot of lessons from 2015 and 2016 in terms of how to, um, you know, not make as many mistakes that people like like you and probably, uh, you know, I look for, um, hoping that they're going to make mistakes so I can find them. Um, so they're better at, you know, better at hiding their tracks and employing better tactics um, that are more convincing. Um, and then you also have countries that have typically um, used disinformation and propaganda domestically that are increasingly taking that capability and turning it outward because they've seen how effective it, it can be on um, 
you know, when they look at a country like Russia, for example, seeing mm-hmm. how effective the Russians um, have been globally in using disinformation and, and mm. covert influence. And so, you know, when you have that domestic arm that has already been used quite successfully to control your population, limit human rights, target press freedoms and things like that, and you see how effective it can be, de- you know, deployed outside of your borders, you know, mm-hmm. the, the thought at first for a lot of countries like here, I would, I would say China, Iran, Saudi, um, mm. You know, that's that's a, a tool that a lot of them are turning to to advance their foreign policy interests and influence, you know, conversations and, and events and policy decisions in other countries. So the number of players that are that are using um, disinformation as a tool and tactic is growing as well on the foreign side. That's so, so interesting in terms of, you know, what you've described there and, and how those different actors have used that kind of domestic environment to get on top of the, the methods, I guess, and the, and the ways of doing it. But also then when they've taken it outside to other countries and they've started doing disinformation campaigns elsewhere, how does it work? I mean, in terms of they haven't just launched straight into massive disinformation campaigns. Have you found instances, and I know this this was possibly the case with um, the, some of the, one of the cases you mentioned there with the, the IRA and uh, how they were trying to influence the elections in 2016 and how they kind of built up to that steadily? Is that is that the kind of thing or is, that, is there a pattern there that you sort of discern in terms of things start small and then grow bigger or are, are countries or actors that are using disinformation just going ahead and launching major campaigns to try and influence events in different countries? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things happening um, that I've seen. So if we look at, um, you know, China or Iran, um, but also Russia, too, I mean, there's there's very much a both a overt and a covert strategy that that are married together, married together. So, um, you know, we often are folks who are sort of paying attention to the disinformation space, we often get very excited and distracted by Mm -hmm. the idea of a fake account. Um, We all want Mm -hmm. to find the person pretending to be somebody else. But actually, Mm -hmm. these countries employ very effectively their own, um, you know, state-run media outlets, um, their own political influencers that are very overtly tied to their respective governments. Um, They use um, their own, their own citizens, their own populations to carry out messages very overtly, um, their their own politicians, their own mm-hmm. you know public figures, and all of that. Mm-hmm. So that's absolutely not something that we should um, forget or ignore because it's extremely effective. They're doing it very blatantly in our faces, um, mm-hmm. and um, and you know it, it works. It gets narratives out there. So they've been doing you know countries like Russia and China have been doing that very overtly on, for example, coronavirus promoting coronavirus mm-hmm. related. Um, conspiracy mm-hmm. theories. Yeah. Um, but then they do have that that sort of more covert side. And what I've seen from um, you know countries like like China and Iran that do have that domestic arm and are starting you know sort of increasingly turning it outward is they're in this stage you know this sort of like less sophisticated side um, or um, less sophisticated stage in terms of their their capabilities and their tactics. So you actually can find you know some automated accounts um, that, you know, countries like Russia have moved away from because they've already learned, right, that um, yeah. those are pretty easily detected, detected and removed from platforms. Um, you can find a lot of sort of like swarming um, of accounts um, suddenly, you know, um, promoting just a particular topic or going after a particular target um, in some of the um, 
in the last couple of months when Iran was um, conducting attacks against um, U.S. military facilities in Iraq, um, suddenly there were uh, accounts um, all over social media that were um, posting supposed pictures of the vast amount of destruction that the Iranians had caused um, uh, facilities in Iraq. And, you know, quick reverse image search showed that those pictures were all, you know, out of context. They were several years old, going all the way back to, you know, in some cases, some of the pictures were from the U.S. Um, uh, invasion into Iraq, you know, um, almost two decades at this point uh, <laughs> before. So some very sort of like low and sophistication um, kinds of efforts. But but they're learning their lessons, too. And um, they're sort of for them, you know, they're sort of uh, up is the only direction they'll go. Really, they'll, they'll learn their lesson. Um, they'll get better at it. Um, you know, we see with um, with different groups and this includes sort of domestic actors in the United States that they learn very quickly um, how to mm-hmm. avoid detection and how to play in that sort of gray zone that social media companies have created for them where it's acceptable for them to, to, you know, be online and and participate in conversations and do these things. And so, you know, these countries will learn, will learn those lessons of of how to, you know, um, play in that gray zone and and not get taken down. That's so interesting. And, uh, you know, I was going to, I was going to ask you about sort of where you see things going, but it sounds like it's going in in two directions, both of which probably are bad in the sense that the the kind of actors that are involved in pursuing disinformation campaigns are only going to increase their capabilities in terms of the level of sophistication, which will in, inevitably, as you say, at the moment, I guess, as you said, they're doing fairly low level stuff in some instances, but um, but learning from that and developing and, and, and presumably they'll, they'll become more sophisticated as time goes on. Um, but also, is is it the, the quantity of it that's also important for them in the sense that it almost doesn't matter if it's low in sophistication. It's just how much of it is coming out. And, you know, I think from my perspective as somebody working in open source intelligence and, you know, being an analyst and also training analysts um, to deal with some of these challenges and how to sift through these reams of sort of, um, you know, uh, false information or disinformation that is plaguing the open source information environment, it's just becoming a greater, greater and greater challenge in in terms of, uh, trying to work out what is uh, what is true and what isn't. So, do you see that both of those things happening at the same time, or is it one or the other? Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Flooding the information space is is a tool and tactic um, that can be very effective for exactly what you described. I mean, mm-hmm. the the folks like you and I who are trying to hunt this stuff, we're just mm-hmm. at such a disadvantage. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, for for a country like China. Um, I always say that their strategy is quantity over quality at this point. Um, yeah. They'll flood the space, but but other groups do too. Um, a lot of um, disinformation that comes from um, far right uh, American sources mm-hmm. use exactly the same strategy. Um, you'll find you know all sorts of mistakes, all sorts of you know little breadcrumbs that they've left uh, for folks like me to to follow. Um, but they're running you know a massive amount of websites, they're running, you know, Facebook pages and groups that are all linked together. They're doing it under, you know, corporation names and things like that that are, you know, very easily traceable for for folks like like us um, who know where to go. But the prevailing thought there is one, um, you know, they they want to flood the information space. They want to force um 
you know, force out all of the good content and put in their content. And then they're building audiences that way, right? So people who are always coming back to them, um, who are always clicking on their websites um, and going to their pages and groups. But then two, you know, on the American side, they know that at this stage, um, the, the sort of current environment on social media platforms is in favor of them, right? So hmm. because, you know, when you, when you get to the sort of domestic question, it becomes an issue of, well, is this personal opinion? You know, is this political mm-hmm. belief? Um, is it, is it really disinform? You know, it might be false information, but if you believe it as a personal political belief, that doesn't really mm-hmm. violate, you know, the terms of service, right. um, for, right. for most of the social media platforms. So mm-hmm. they have, you know, much more liberty to operate. I guess it's one of the downsides that we're not really going to be able to avoid, right? In terms of we want those platforms to remain open and accessible for everybody, but at the same time, not to be able to be used and, and have uh, this type of impact. I mean, you know, we talked there a bit about the the types of disinformation you're seeing and, and the, the sort of ways it's being used. Is it possible to measure the impact? You know, is that is that feasible? Is that something you're able to sort of see in terms of any particular cases that you've looked at where you can see directly how many people or the extent to which people have been influenced by some of these campaigns? It strikes me that quite often in some of the research we've done that that's the that's the challenge. You can you can sometimes identify this, the disinformation and you can see what the intent is and perhaps who's behind it. But actually trying to gauge the impact is a huge challenge. Is that something you've had much success with? So this is a, an issue I really I feel pretty strongly about. Mm-hmm. Um, understanding that measuring impact is extremely difficult because. Mm-hmm. For the most, you know, for the research that's been done, and most of it's occurred in the academic space, and thank goodness for for the academics out there who are mm. who are doing these studies and investigations on impact, um, it being such a tricky issue. Um, the research that has been done so far indicates that, you know, at least in the United States, when looking at something like the 2016 presidential election, there wasn't one meme or one post, right, that changed a person's mind completely. Rather, it was sort of the steady diet of false and misleading and sensational, you know, politically divisive content over, you know, several years in which a person was sort of formulating their their personal political beliefs. And then the false information that was introduced, you know, in the run-up to the election, therefore didn't change the person's opinion, but rather just confirmed and had them sort of become further entrenched in their personal political beliefs. So it's complicated for that reason, because you really do sort of have to look at almost a complete life, right? Um, <laughs> worth of, of indicators um, and experiences and, um, and you know, events and things like that that have shaped a person into, you know, media cons- consumption and, and all of that, that has shaped a person into, yeah. you know, where they're at. And then when you are introducing sort of the new false and misleading content, how does it change from there? So it's it's extremely difficult. But yeah. I also, you know, very strongly believe that we have to look at these things. We absolutely have to look at these things because, um, you know, other otherwise sort of like what are what are you and I doing exactly in, in <laughs> you know in investigating and raising this yeah. stuff? Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's a question my manager probably has on his mind sometimes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, I I do think that we have these we have these examples um, recently that I that I, I keep going back to um, with respect to um, 
you know, the national unrest that that's currently happening in the United States over police violence. So there's, you know, um, there are some narratives that are being, you know, pushed by um, the current administration, current politicians, and then also amplified by um, extreme uh, right wing sources that, um, you know, dangerous rioters and looters, um, Antifa in some cases are coming to American towns to essentially take over the towns, destroy, you know, buildings, um, infiltrate, all of those things. Every, you know, sort of every, um, stereotype you could think of when you think of sort of the idea of a, a quote unquote outside agitator. Um, this is sort of the, the conspiracy that's been circulating for some months now. Um, and, and there's been real world consequences of people mm-hmm. believing those conspiracies, uh, believing those, those, those false, um, posts about, you know, warning people of Antifa's coming, writers and looters are coming to your town. We've had, you know, instances in which, um, you know, people who've been suspected of being Antifa simply because, um, they're, they're not white, um, being harassed and followed, um, in towns. We've had instances in which, um, you know, there was a there was a case in the U.S. where um, a person, a, a man was out with his son who had a disability, who um, had an accessible bus that he was driving because it's what he could get his son into is, you know, the family vehicle. And, um, you know, someone saw the bus parked at a Walmart, took a picture of it. And, you know, the claim went viral that Antifa had showed up to this Walmart in this small American town. And they were coming to take over. And, it, you know, I mean, that could have been extremely dangerous for this man yeah. and his son uh, yeah. who were simply shopping uh, in a vehicle that supposedly looks suspicious. Wow. I mean, it's it's incredible how we're seeing so many of these small incidents because people are basically, it seems, reading things online, taking them at face value, not questioning them, not applying any kind of critical thinking. You, you, I mean, we talked there briefly about the social media platforms and, you know, how difficult it is maybe for them to do anything about this. Although we've seen just this week, Twitter taking some action, um, which is encouraging in some ways, but I'm sure there's going to be some people who will say that, well, this is restricting freedom of speech, et cetera, you know, by taking some of these accounts offline, um, which are spreading, you know, are genuinely spreading false information. But for the people that believe that information, it's a difficult situation because obviously Twitter wants to be seen as a, a neutral arbiter or all the social media platforms, I guess, want to be seen as neutral arbiters and and, and not having any kind of uh, editorial authority over the information that they host. Although I, I think one of the things we've seen this year is probably more of a shift in that stance, would you say? I mean, certainly with Twitter, I think they've been more proactive than maybe some of the other platforms in taking down some of this information. And did you want to maybe touch a little bit on that, on, on some of that as well and, and the, the role that those platforms are playing and, and what they can do, if they're, if anything, if they can do any more to help sort of counter the effects of disinformation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen um, the social media platforms take um, new steps that they weren't even considering a year ago, um, that were considered sort of too too aggressive or too invasive or you know too whatever. Um, but when the global pandemic started, um, it shifted a lot of thinking. Um, first, I would say, um, you know, all the social media platforms are at very different levels in terms of the extent to which they're addressing disinformation and coordinated and authentic behavior um, on their platforms, the resources that they've devoted to addressing the problems um, and sort of where they're at in their sort of policy development. So they are very different. I think what we, what has shifted some of the thinking is the idea, the idea of 
information that can cause real world harm and defining what is real world harm and mm-hmm. figuring out um, what actually can lead to real world harm. Because before, you know, prior to the global pandemic um, and for some weeks after it started, the prevailing thought was these, cons- you know, these health conspiracies, um, the sort of health based disinformation, um, those are just sort of personal beliefs, um, anti-vaxxing, things like that. Those are just right. personal beliefs. We have no role in, in sort of being the arbiter of, um, you know, speech and, and personal political belief or, um, that sort of thing. But then the, the sort of, um, the understanding of, of real world harm, I think started to shift. Um, one thing that I noticed was, um, you know, the, the 5G conspiracy. So the idea mm-hmm. that, you know, people started introducing the idea that 5G was causing the coronavirus, um, in the first couple of, of weeks, um, in particular of the pandemic starting. And, you know, in the beginning, that sounded to some of these platforms, I think, you know, just sort of nutty. Um, right. it couldn't lead it's, to I mean, real it's, world It sounds harm. almost it like just, a joke, right? I mean, but it, yeah, you know, there yeah. are there are waves mm. and radio frequencies, yeah, yeah. mm. you know, because of that we have the coronavirus. Um, you it's know, the kind of thing so, you might read in the Onion. <laughs> yes, you know? yeah. yeah, and and I think sort that's how satire. they took it, you know, mm-hmm. sort of across yeah. the board was, you know, this is harmless. It's just, you know, it's sort of like chemtrails. Like, okay, um, the people who believe in chemtrails. Um, but then you saw people in the UK, uh, yeah. for example, attacking mm. cell phone towers, causing mm. real world physical damage, and suddenly. Um, platforms shifted and, and those mm-hmm. kinds of, uh, that kind of content started being removed because they were seeing real world harm from this content. It wasn't personal belief anymore. It was encouraging violence against, you know, people, infrastructure, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, you know, to me, it's unfortunate that, um, they have to wait to see the violence and the harm, um, for themselves yeah. before yeah. being able to put together sort of all of the pieces and the indicators and, and, you know, and see that like, okay, this group is, is encouraging violence. So it's literally a matter of time before there is real world harm. That sort of proactiveness, I think is necessary. Um, and, and isn't a question of, of free speech. It's, you know, you have a group, you have people who are actively encouraging violence and harm. Um, and we, we know now from, from past experience that, that it is successful in encouraging people to, to, you know, commit attacks and things like that. So there's certainly more that they can do on that front. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the QAnon stuff that's come out in the last couple of days from Twitter and, and now Facebook is, is going to be, um, following suit in some form or fashion. We know, um, I think is really interesting. Um, there has long been evidence that this group encourages violence and has, it has led to violence. It's been, you know, years at this point. Um, where we've seen, uh, you know, believers commit attacks, um, get arrested, commit murders, even, um, you know, the FBI labeled them as a possible domestic terrorist threat in the United States. Um, that was last year. So right. the actions happening now, I mean, you know, from my perspective, good. Um, mm. also quite late at this stage. Yeah. Is it the case that a lot of the, the agencies may be tasked with agencies and government departments may be tasked with kind of trying to do more to prevent this type of activity. They almost don't want to do it predictively. They kind of want to wait until the situation has reached the point it has, like you say, where you're seeing real world harm before they'll move to act against these types of groups. And, you know, that's almost, 
a legacy of the pre twenty sixteen era, and that now, especially in the in the light of what we've seen in the last four years, that things have to change, and, and we've got to shift a little bit in in trying to tackle this information before it has that kind of effect. But do you see a more of a willingness now in terms of in you know compared to say four years ago? Has that changed in in the attitudes of uh, governments in terms of not just wanting to do something about this, but also finding the means to do it because it is a fine balance to strike, right? In terms of making sure that people's freedom of speech is still assured whilst also clamping down on dangerous information. Yeah. I mean, um, countries are at very different states at this point mm-hmm. on this issue. And I think, you know, there are some, some countries who are really at the forefront of coming up with um, innovative solutions, everything from, you know, uh, more investment in digital media literacy training for not just students, mm-hmm. but also communities in general, regardless of, of age group. Um, which I think is absolutely necessary. And the United States in particular, uh, it, the government has not sufficiently invested the way that they should at this point. Um, and it's, you know, something that I hope we will, we will do more of in the mm-hmm. coming years. Um, but there are leaders like that, um, that I think are doing really, really great work. Um, and then other, you know, um, Taiwan, for example, is doing a lot mm-hmm. of inno- innovative work in how the government responds to, um, misinfor- mis and disinformation. And they're a huge target of, of both. Yeah. Um, and so, um, some of the things that they're doing in terms of how they respond to it as a government, setting up, you know, significant resources in order to track it, um, mm-hmm. to track narratives that are, that are moving, um, and, uh, do investigations and, and things like that. And then, um, address it publicly in a way that is very accessible to the public. Mm-hmm. They often use, hu- you know, humor, for example, to address right. um, and, and counter narratives that are out there. Um, I think those are very innovative ways that governments are approaching this problem. But, you know, I can speak from the United States perspective. We're, you know, woefully b- behind. Our government is still sort of debating whether Russia even interfered in 2016. Um, well, I was going to say, I don't think the U.S. is alone in, in, yeah, I don't think the U.S. is alone in prevaricating over Russian influence. It's, uh, it's been a hot topic in the U.K. this week as well in terms of the uh, the report into Russian election interference and, uh, you know, how that's taken so long to come out um, and be published. But yeah, I mean, okay, it's interesting that yeah, different different countries at different stages, like you said, and um, it feels like. And certainly from from what we see, countries and governments are getting interested in trying to do something about disinformation in the run up to major events like elections, but they're almost leaving it too late. Like like they're thinking about it kind of six months before. And I feel like they ought to be doing it well before that, you know, because certainly the, the campaigns will have become, begun before that, you know, that they want to counter, right? This issue is here to stay. Mm. So um, it doesn't it doesn't come and go with elections. Um, or crisis events like a pandemic, it's here to stay. And that's what we've seen with, with something like QAnon, for example. Mm. Um, the amount that they were able to recruit and grow since 2016, uh, you know, between now and then is, is mind blowing at times to the, mm-hmm. to the point where they have, you know, QAnon believers are running for Congress in the United States. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, it's been three years is all. I mean, yeah, it's phenomenal. It's the, the, the rate of progress for the group. Um, I mean, just for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with the QAnon sort of group and movement conspiracy, I'm not sure quite how to term it, but um, but yeah, would you be able to give a bit of background maybe to that and, and 
talk about how they've used information to to sort of grow and prosper and, and advance their cause. Yeah, so there's some some fantastic um, coverage of of QAnon and the movement and its development over time. Um, so if folks are interested, there's a lot of research being done that, that's out there. Um, but just by way of background, so um, you know, in the run up to the the U.S. election, um, posts started appearing on various um, forum forums and, and message boards um, and on accounts um, directing people to this, you know sort of quote unquote um insider who had secret information um and you know sort of top secret access to to information um about several you know scandals that essentially would lead to the eventual arrest of um prominent um political figures in the United States such as Hillary Clinton. Folks might might remember hearing the the term Pizzagate a lot. Yeah. Um it was the conspiracy theory that um, promoting the idea that the Democrats, primarily um, Hillary, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and then presidential candidate uh, as well, <laughs> Hillary Clinton, um, and and former President Bill Clinton, uh, with some other prominent Democrats, were running a child sex trafficking ring out of the basement of a pizza parlor in Washington D.C. Um, and the conspiracy gained just a massive amount of traction to the point where an actual armed man drove from North Carolina to Washington, D.C., stormed the pizza parlor looking for these alleged, you know, kidnapped children um, in the basement that actually didn't even exist in the pizza parlor. Um, but but the group sort of spun out from from there and suddenly uh, a figure called Q came onto the scene and saying, you know, I am this I am this insider. I have this access. I know about all of these um, nefarious things. There's an international cohort of evildoers called the Cabal that is essentially pulling the puppet strings um, around the world and making your lives miserable. I mean, it was very, you know, sort of um, everything you think a, a conspiracy theory is is going to be. Um, this idea of, you know, I mean, global evildoers. Um, so every once in a while, you know, Q post um, some warning of, you know, something big is happening, look out for it. Um, sort of these very self-fulfilling prophecies in which after, you know, something big inevitably does happen because that's the way the world works, they can sort of claim success. Um, but they've been recycling sort of the same, the same larger narratives of, you know, global international sex trafficking ring uh, child sex trafficking ring, trafficking ring, uh, the cabal, sort of all of those things. Um, and every, you know, every day, really, there's some new claim that some celebrity, public figure, politician, company, even uh, recently, especially, um, is part of this this global plot. Yeah, and, and like you said, now it's it's gone. Uh, so it's gone from being, I guess, just a, a range of information being posted online to having people believe it to steadily growing to and, and then more recently rapidly growing to the point where people believe it so fervently that it it's become an as it become an almost organized group. It's gone from being a sort of a collection of people believing the same thing to now being almost a, a polit politically influential collective in some way. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, to be honest, but they're having more impact, right? Yeah, they are having mm. more impact, but they're also like not necessarily a super organized group mm. either. I mean, if you look at sort of the messages posted by followers, they very much pick and choose what they believe. They, they, it's sort of a interpret it as you will, uh, you know, find the clues, hunt the internet, um, come up with, you know, the, the decoding of this latest message, um, and, and that sort of thing. And so it's very much open to interpretation. So you do have 
quite, you know, quite different beliefs um, within, within the group. But at the same time, like they sell merch, like there's like, you know, there, there's Q merch, you know, and they're candidates for Q believers, you know, running for Congress. So there is an element of, of organization, but on the other hand, it is very, you know, sort of choose your own adventure um, style. And then, you know, I mean, one of the interesting things about all of the conspiracies circulating currently over coronavirus and unrest and things like that is um, is seeing all of these different conspiracy groups like QAnon, but then also like anti-vaxxers. And then in the United States, we also um, have, you know, Second Amendment enthusiasts, um, you know, so gun rights um, enthusiasts that sort of pick and pull from different parts of conspiracy groups. So you might see a Second Amendment gun rights activist who is a complete Q believer, but is not an anti-vaxxer or an anti-vaxxer who's not a Second Amendment enthusiast, but it's a Q, a Q believer or a Q believer. You know, I mean, just the sort of like yeah, mixing and melding yeah. and picking and pulling um, from all of these different belief systems um, has been really fascinating to, to try very unsuccessfully, <laughs> I should add, to, to sort of chart um, the overlap and the spread of, of narratives and, and which groups are plugging into what. And almost, uh, it is fascinating, and, and it's a, it's such a live example, I guess, of what we're talking about in terms of how people are influenced and and how these things spread. And and the the, the I don't know. Well, from my perspective, anyway, the, the absence of any kind of critical thinking that seems to be going on in terms of how people absorb this information and then decide to act upon it. So, kind of, I mean, taking a sort of step back from there and thinking in the broader picture about disinformation. Again, a little more generally, you know, is there anything that that, that um, can be done to sort of stop the to prevent the impacts? Because it feels like there's not a huge amount that can be done at the moment. Although we talked about some of the social media platforms and how they can kind of restrict the flow of some of this information, it, it, but ultimately that's going to be a losing battle, I guess. And and again, it'd be great to get your thoughts. But that trying to spread the trying to stop the spread of this information is almost harder in many ways than, than maybe trying to stop it having an effect or to stop it or stop people believing it and acting upon it i don't know what's your take on it is there is there a trade-off there do you, is it easier to do one than the other or do, do governments have to focus on trying to do both and trying to get people to actually have the uh, mental resilience in many ways or the, the capability to see past some of this disinformation yeah so i mean a couple of things so people always ask me if this is like a hopeless issue, is there any solution? Right. And I don't think it's a hopeless issue, but it also requires all of us to be able to, as we say, I don't know if this is a saying for you guys, but um, in the United States, we say walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so it's not, we, we can't always be in this position, whether it's social media companies, whether it's governments um, where we're on the defensive the whole time, we need to be building, you know, as we're dealing with the massive floods of information every single day, we have to be building some, you know, proactive measures, capabilities, policies, et cetera, that put us in a better mm-hmm. position. So we're not always in crisis mode because this isn't going to go away. Um, you know, we call right now um, the time period, the infodemic, because the amount of false information mm-hmm. that's circulating um, second to second, moment by moment is, is just unprecedented. Um, but it, but we will have another time like this. And so we have to take the steps now and do the investments now where we're doing both the defensive side of things, but also building some, some resilience in um, a huge focus for me. Um, and it's why, you know, shameless book plug, why I wrote <laughs> my book, True or False. Um, Great timing. Because... That's exactly what I was going to ask you about next. So, yeah, this is <laughs> <Excellent>. perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, why I wrote True or False was because I feel, you know, so first of all, I don't think this is just a social media problem. I don't think it's just a government problem or a problem for for us. It's an all of us problem. So, um, you know, that being said, real people are the ones who who sort of are at the 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 end and the beginning, the beginning and the end of, of this problem, because it's real people who are spreading this stuff. And yeah, it might be for the Russian government uh, that they're creating this content, but it's real people. And then it's real people that are amplifying this, falling for the false information and then sharing it with their networks. And so real people, more so than any other national security issue, frankly, um, really have to be a huge part of the solution. So, um, you know, there needs to be significant investment in helping people obtain the tools and tactics that they need to be able to be that first line of defense. So when something nefarious comes across their screens, which it does multiple times a day, um, they need to be able to, you know, stop before they share and run through sort of mentally a, a little checklist um, that they think about before, you know, they share the content to make sure that they're not contributing to the problem. Um, you know, my book is really sort of like not a call to arms, but it's, you know, it's sort of a, okay, like you have to be part of the solution. Like here are some tools and, and, and tricks. Let's go. Um, and I do, I do firmly believe that if people employed, um, some of the, the things that I talk about in my book, um, our social media platforms, our online space would be in a much better position. Can you maybe touch on some of the advice you give in the book in terms of what people can run through in terms of that, that kind of checklist you mentioned that helps them discern whether information is, is true or false and whether they should then act upon it, spread it, et cetera, or just ignore it. Yeah. So the book is aimed at the average information consumer. So nothing in it is you have to do all these super technical, you know, steps. I'm going to train you to be a digital, you know, an investigator like me. Um, <laughs> because, you know, there, there aren't enough of us right there. Um, so there was no point in sort of talking to my, my field of colleagues already. So I'm talking to the average information consumer, the person with the phone in their hand that's on Facebook and Twitter and all of those places. So, um, so it's, it's a lot of very basic things. One of the things that I talk a lot about is, um, understanding our own personal biases. And this comes from, again, the whole book comes from my experience as a, as an intelligence analyst. Um, we spend a lot of time learning about how to address our own personal biases that come as a result of, um, you know, sort of our lived experiences, um, and, um, and, you know, sort of our, our positions of privilege and things like that, um, that we have throughout our lives that really do affect not only how we interpret information, but even the information that we will even look at, right? Right. Um, or go looking for. So, um, understanding our own biases is, is, is hugely important as a, as a first sort of foundational step. Um, I also talk about things like particularly in crisis situations and, you know, you're turning to social media or, you know, your various you're, you're Googling what's happening in this. There's a shooting or there's a, you know, an earthquake or there's a global pandemic, for example, and you're looking for answers um, and just sort of casting a casting a line into the water to see what information you can find. Um, the kinds of steps that you need to take first start with stopping and breathing, frankly, because amped up emotions, stress, anxiety, and panic are when our critical thinking skills shut off. And we don't question what we're seeing. We just immediately share because we're trying to warn, you know, everybody around us about the, uh, you know, the danger. So um, stopping and breathing to be able to then do the investigative work. So looking at things like, okay, if I'm looking at a post from an account, 
do I know that person behind the account? Is it somebody, you know, that I know in real life? Um, or is this a random stranger? Um, what are they citing? Are they citing, uh, you know, nothing? They're making claims, but there's no citation. There's no website I can go to. There's no statistic I can verify. Um, there's no, you know, uh, there's nothing for me to do further you know, best to ignore at that point until you can verify. But if there is a website, if there is sort of a next step, can you go to it? Can you, you know, look at on the website, for example, very obvious signs of, um, you know, the fact that it might not be super reliable content. For example, you know, does it say on the website that it is news for a particular partisan belief or, you know, geared towards a particular partisan belief that's not going to be unbiased news coverage is for a particular audience. Um, are there other signs of maybe, um, you know, the website is sort of a homespun, half-baked, maybe financially motivated, you know, uh, endeavor by somebody who's creating a bunch of sites and just filling it with content? For example, you know, broken links or typos or, um, you know, sort of signs of it still being a WordPress template, for example, um, and not an established news source that's been operating for years. Um, those kinds of things are just hugely important, even even simple things, um, simpler even than all of that, of just reading more than just the headline of an article. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've had some studies done recently in the United States where the vast majority of Americans admit that they don't read any more than the headline before sharing it. That's a problem. Right. So it's yep. implementing very simple things into sort of our daily information habits that in the long run, I think will really pay off. That's uh, that all sounds like excellent advice, and I think I'm, I mean I'm a firstly looking forward to reading the book myself, but it's the kind of thing that I think is has been so necessary for so so much time, and you know in the training that we deliver, which is focused on open source intelligence, and like you said, it, it, sometimes that can be a sort of a, a niche community, and you know we end up all talking to each other because we're all doing the same kind of research or investigations, using the same kind of techniques of verification, etc. Um, and we all know the challenges and, and the, uh, things like that. But it, I, I've often thought, you know, we need to get this out to a wider audience. We need to actually get the skills, and and it's not just skills. I mean, it, it, I think what you've described there is the mindset around. Um, like you said, information habits, better information habits, um, and and getting getting that into and across to maybe younger audiences, so that um, it becomes a habit from an early age, so that people are um, more information literate. I suppose it, you know, I've, I know it's been described like that in in other ways, and and just getting people doing exactly those kind of steps you mentioned there, which is you know taking a step back from the information, not being so emotional when they're reacting to it, if they can. I mean, I know it's unavoidable sometimes with some of the things you see, especially when it's more visual content, et cetera, but, but taking a breath and just thinking about it more carefully. And I guess the, 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 what I liked about what you described also and drawing upon some of your background, working in intelligence in the past, identifying biases and being aware of those. I mean, we've often focused on that element of, of open source intelligence because I think often, far too often people get obsessed with finding information without thinking enough about how do they, how do they use it? What do they do with it? And, and how much do their own biases play into, like you said, not just actually assessing information, but how does it affect how they go out and get it? And, and things like keywords, et cetera, you might use could easily be biased one way or another. So um, do, do you, you know, do you feel like, there is a uh, there is hope, I guess, in the sense that you know you can get over to people the these these important lessons and and ask them to change their habits, and they will, and people will pick up on these things you're talking about, and that this could have an impact. 
I do. I well, first I have to have hope um, because <laughs> yes, <true>. <laughs> um, yeah. this is you know I live and breathe this stuff. This is what I do almost 24 hours a day, um, much to the chagrin of my family. Um, but um, uh, and so I have to have hope um, that that the work that I'm doing um, is making our information spaces better and safer. Um, but I also have more tangible proof of of, of how there is hope. So um, you know personal sharing. Um, I don't, I don't talk too much about my, my family, but I will say, um, you know, a couple of, of family members all the way from, you know, my parents, um, who are older, we'll say, um, <laughs> I'm sure they wouldn't <laughs> like me to list their, their age, but, um, no, who sure. are, you know, in, in the age where, um, they're sort of learning still how to use smartphones, for example, um, all the way down to, um, you know, people in my network who are in their teens, um, they, um, you know, they read uh, early copies of my book and later I heard from them, um, I got this thing in my, in my social media feed, um, or I got this email. I did exactly as you said, I did X, Y, and Z, you know, I looked at the source or I looked at, you know, where the link was taking me and I noticed blah, blah, blah. I didn't share it because then I knew it was wrong. Right. Um, I get things like that all the time from Twitter followers, people who follow me on social media, who read my writing, you know, my writing and my investigations and things that I've made public um, and who then implement those skills, who then, you know, catch something, um, are able to inform their own network of um, false or misleading content that their network is sharing um, or, you know, just simply decide I followed the steps. This is not accurate information. I'm not going to share it. So, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's some small examples. Um, but, uh, imagine if, if that were, you know, happening worldwide, you know, um, not just people in my own immediate network that I've heard from, but, you know, at a global level, I think we'd be in a very different situation. So that's the hope that I, <laughs> that I have with me every day. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I hope, well, my hope is that actually, that it does work. And as you say, and, and, you know, that we can get more people thinking about these kinds of things and using the steps that you've talked about there. So yeah, we wish you every success with the book and I hope that uh, you get a, a wide audience for it. And I'm certainly, as I said, looking forward to reading it. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the more we can get this type of advice out to people, the better. So um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hoping that people in our audience will also pick up a copy and, and let you know what they think and, and, and find, probably as you described there, find examples for you. Cause I, that's certainly what I've found in my experience once you once you do train people to sort of spot this type of um information then you do start getting examples sent to you more often and uh and hopefully yeah that's like you said it has an impact on a wider scale as more and more people um pick up those sort of skills and knowledge so um this has been great talking cindy i'm conscious that you know we're we're up against time but um yeah it's been really really great talking to you and getting your thoughts on disinformation and where you're seeing things develop how you're seeing things develop and some of the the work that you've been involved in some of the experience you've managed to apply to it as well and, and bring together to understand disinformation um i hope that'll be you know really useful and inter interesting for our audience and um yeah it'd be great great to talk to you again in future and, and find out well especially with some of the events we have coming up this year, the election, et cetera, um, to see how things develop. And perhaps we can, we can do a post-election review maybe and see, uh, see where we're at at that point. Yeah. And I, I imagine we're going to, we're going to hear a lot more about disinformation over the course of the, the next six months or so. 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely have some some interesting months ahead. But I, another reason for hope is that there are good folks like you also out there working on this issue. So, um, so thanks very much for having me. No, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks for listening. Please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or on your preferred podcast listening platform. And for more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development, go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training.